dependent on him to work in us so that we'll respond as we ought as he speaks. So let's pray. Father, please do give us attention and thoughtfulness and capacity to reflect and understand and see the implications of the things you speak to us. Please work by your Spirit. Please tune our heads, hearts, and lives as we hear you speak your word in your Son. Amen. Paul says these things because Jesus sent him to say them. He's an apostle. He says them because he loves the people he's writing to. Earlier in the letter, we we heard Paul's joyful thanks to God for what God had been doing in the Philippians. Uh, Here in verse 1, he stacks description upon description upon description of who they are to him. Brothers and sisters, his beloved, people he longs to be with, his joy and crown, his beloved. We hear his side of them as men, women, and children who share the same heavenly Father. His deep affection for them, his deep desire to be with them for their gospel good and his gospel encouragement. His present experience of joy at the sight of God's work in them, his anticipation of the day that he will see them gathered around the throne with him, when their presence there will be his crown, uh, the visible sign that his preaching to them was not empty effort. He loves them. He wants to see them stand firm in the Lord as he has stood firm in the Lord imitating his eager longing for when the Lord Jesus Christ brings him home and makes him and them gloriously and eternally perfect. Imitating him in living out and longing for, with a day-to-day determination, God's work in them, God's work in him. Living out that longing in a day-to-day determination to forget what's past, to strain towards what is ahead, what Jesus wants for him, and to drag as much of that as possible into his present experience. Through Paul, our Lord Jesus Christ calls each of us who trust and follow him to the same future-focused longing. The same day-to-day striving for progress towards what his purpose is for us in the strength he provides by his Holy Spirit. It's a command. You and I respond to such commands by grumbling and disputing with God or by obeying him with fear and trembling. We respond either by living like he's worthy or living like we'd be better off in disobedience. Living like he's worthy 
living like it would be a big deal to treat him like he doesn't deserve our obedience. That's how we ought to respond to God's commands. He calls us to stand firm as Paul stood firm. So each of us ought to respond, but we're not alone. It's not just about each one of us doing our own thing with God apart from all the others. Uh, Sometimes it feels like it would be easier if it was. Uh, Not isolated from everyone, but isolated from some particular people. Maybe you wouldn't think that, but it seems that at least a couple of people in Philippi thought that. They thought, they happen to be women. Uh, Verse 2, Paul says, I entreat Uriah and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. He pleads, he exhorts, he urges each of them to agree in the Lord. He urges them and he asks his true companion to get involved, probably one of the uh, elder overseers. Tells him to help, verse 3, these women who have labored side by side with Paul in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of his fellow workers, Paul's fellow workers, uh, whose names are in the book of life. Paul isn't calling Yoria and Syntyche out on disbelief. Their names are in the book of life where God lists the people who have eternal life. If the end of one or both of them was destruction, well, they'd be saying different things. If they were going in the direction of the enemies of the cross of Christ, he'd be saying different things. But they hold to the truth of the gospel. They've been partners with Paul and with others in the work of the gospel. But for one reason or another, now they don't agree in the Lord. It's been going on for long enough. Uh, It's been having wide enough impact for Paul to have heard about it in Rome and to, I guess, heard about it enough to think, well, I need to write back to have it dealt with. So what's going on? Um, Or really, what's not going on? What does Paul mean when he calls them and us by implication, to agree in the Lord. The the phrase to agree translates a phrase which more literally is to think the same. The idea is of being of the same mind, which is how the phrase is translated back in chapter 2, verse 2. It's living in harmony. How it comes through English in Romans chapter 12 and chapter 15. Paul's calling for that harmony that same-mindedness in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it'll help to read a few sentences from the start of Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, verses 1 to 6. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us uh, please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you, uh, the blame of those who blamed you, fell on me, on on Christ in context. Uh, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony 
So that phrase, to agree, to think the same with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, see, seeing Christ as the one who took the blame for us has got to shape the way we relate to one another. It brings us together in spite of what might otherwise separate us. It causes us to relate in a way which fits with who he is and what he has done for each of us. Harmony. Deliberate, chosen, Christ went to the cross for us. Harmony. I think Paul's getting at the same idea here in in Philippians chapter 4, partly because of what comes next. Uh, There are no logic words to tie verses 2 to 3 to what comes next, no therefore, for, however, or... I used to think that Paul was just giving us a list of things which weren't particularly related to one another, wider commands for the congregation. But I've begun to think that these commands to rejoice in the Lord, to be gentle, uh, to remember that the Lord is near, that they're related to this command towards harmony. They're, they're always on sort of commands. They're wider than that. But they have a particular importance when there's conflict. Verse 4 about rejoicing in the Lord. Uh, What do we together rejoice in the Lord always about? What's he calling us towards? Now, we need to be reminded to rejoice in the ever-rejoiceable Lord Jesus over and over, again and again, not least when there's conflict and disharmony to distract. But what do we rejoice in when we rejoice in the Lord Jesus? Who he is, what he's done, what he is doing, what he will do for me. That's what I rejoice in. No, it's not. Yes, each of us rejoicing in what he's done, will do, is doing, will do for us personally, but for us corporately. Not just me, us. See, when I look across a disagreement at a Christian brother or sister, or when we look in on a disagreement and we find ourselves working out, thinking, which side am I going to take? We'll do something more sensible if we rejoice first. Because as we rejoice, we see reality. Well, we'll, we'll, as we rejoice in reality, well, we've got to see it, haven't we? In order to rejoice in those forgotten realities, we've got to stop and think about them. And as we see them, it will change how we perceive relationships. Among those forgotten realities is the fact that this brother or sister, or or this one and this one too, are among those for whom Christ died. As we're thinking, isn't he kind? That he took the blame. That he has made each of them family with each other and with us. Forgiven, accepted, loved. Not yet perfect, but indwelled by the Spirit who is doing his work. And he will complete it in the day when Christ Jesus returns. As we're rejoicing. That's an impact on us. 
Now, the command is not just a pragmatic means to an end, like rejoice in order to resolve conflict. It's not just that. Jesus deserves to be praised and honored and thanked because he deserves to be praised and honored and thanked. But as we deliberately direct our thoughts and affections to who he is, to what he's done, is doing, will do, for ourselves and others and one another, the landscape of our relationships shift. So rejoice, always. I said, I think it has wider, it's, all, it's always on stuff. I know this command to rejoice in the Lord always, especially the always, can feel a bit unrealistic. And it will, if you think what he is saying, is be happy, feel nothing but joy every moment, all the time. He isn't. We've heard his grief, his concern, his sorrow surfacing in this letter. His point is that none of those things and no other delights should be allowed to push out rejoicing in the Lord. We're complex beings. We can feel more than one thing at a time. One of my biggest earthly conflicts I could think of as I was preparing for today was seeing dearly loved family and friends. <laughs> For the first time in years, when it was back in Ireland in 2015, at my dad's wake and at his funeral, the joy of people walking through the door and the sorrow. We're complex beings. We can rejoice. That was joy in the, in the context of a bigger sorrow. Paul's talking about joy <laughs> in the context of smaller sorrows. I know, Paul knew. God knows you have all sorts of other things going on. Pains and pleasures. Paul was writing to people experiencing opposition from the outside of the church, conflict within the church. Nothing kills joy and rejoicing like conflict. It can fill our horizon but he writes this command. He says, rejoice always. Paul himself was in prison. He couldn't do what he longed to do as a, a, an in-person gospel preacher. Some bad-hearted believers had been uh, preaching just to make life difficult for him. But he keeps rejoicing in the Lord Jesus. He even rejoices in their preaching. Whatever else is going on, you are losing perspective if you're not rejoicing in Christ. Whatever else is going on, you are losing perspective if you're not rejoicing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you do rejoice and explore the depth and the breadth of who Jesus is, of what he's done, of what he is doing, of what he will do for yourself, for us, for other believers, seeing those rejoiceable eternal realities will help tune your head, heart, and life in relationship with those for whom Christ died. Part of that includes gentleness, verse 5. The main text in the ESV has reasonableness. Um, 
Some ESVs at least have the footnote gentleness. I just realized my paper copy doesn't. Uh, but it, it is the gentle word. It's be gentle. It's have a reputation for gentleness. The sort of gentleness and reasonableness Paul is talking about is consideration for others, not insisting on our rights against them, uh, not needing to win against them. Uh, one of the Bible commentators uh, mentioned this line from an American philosopher. Uh, Strong men uh, can always afford to be gentle. Only the weak are intent on giving as good as they get. I think Paul's point is more like forgiven people can afford to be gentle. With one another and with everyone else, Jesus' people must show Jesus-like gentleness which turns the other cheek, which is more interested in what's good for others. Another thing which makes for harmony for others, another thing which wider as well. And the freedom to do all of that is because the Lord is near. Second half of verse 5. He is near to care for his people. Uh, us, uh, the brothers and sisters, we're inclined to be in disharmony with. He's near. The Lord is near is Old Testament language about the Lord God. Here I think applied to the Lord Jesus who is near us by his spirit. It's about him being with us now to care for us now. The focus isn't on when he'll come. Uh, Old Testament uh, language for that in terms of nearness is the nearness of the day of the Lord. Listen for the phrase, the Lord is near in these psalms. Uh, hear the comfort for Christ's people. Psalm 34, verse 15 to 18. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears are toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 145, verses 14 to 20. The Lord upholds all who are falling, and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. The Psalms speak about the Lord being near to assure God's people, those who trust him, that he is near to care for to deliver, to save. To save those who call on him. Which fits with verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. None of us who know Christ as Savior and God as Father need to be anxious beyond the anxiety appropriate to men, women, and children 
who are under the Lord's loving care. There's no need to be anxious beyond the anxiety appropriate to men, women, and children. He can bring and leave the things which most concern us with our Heavenly Father. The last verse of chapter 3 mentioned the power that enables the Lord Jesus Christ to subject all things to himself. Nothing in heaven or on earth or under the earth is above or beyond his rule, his almighty rule. He can and he will do all that he intends. Jesus taught us to call on his almighty father as our father. Which is what his apostle commands us to do in verse 6. In everything, uh, nothing too big or, or too little, by prayer, but speaking to God, by supplication, asking him to fill what's lacking, with thanksgiving, which remembers and rejoices in the relationship we already have with him, the care we've already experienced from him, the assurance that he can and will do exactly what's best for us. Let your requests be made known to God. Ask the Almighty God who can and will do all that he intends. Ask him to act. Ask God who has adopted you as his child, who has committed himself to your good. Ask him to act. Bring and keep bringing the things which would otherwise make you incredibly anxious. Bring them to God who loves you and is able to act. Verse 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He knows better than us. He may or he may not give us what we ask, but we can trust God with that. He'll do what's best. God will not always take us out of our problems, but he will guard our hearts with his peace. Paul's getting at here the beyond understanding this. It's the supernatural inner calm which has no logic when the circumstances are unchanged, but which guards us from being overcome and losing hearts. The supernatural confidence in the Lord who is near to care for us. The supernatural confidence in our Heavenly Father who is working His good purpose in the Lord Jesus I know it's easy to grumble and argue it, it can't be done. Life presses in. Patterns of thought become so well-worn well it feels like there's no other path to walk. Anxiety about what comes next. Anxiety about what's already been. Work exams, friends, family, future. The expectations of others, the expectations we have for ourselves. Pressures can build until words like do not be anxious about anything do, well, do little more than add to the anxiety. Add the anxiety that I can't stop being anxious. Feels like it can't be done. Of course it can. 
and not by, by drowning anxiety in distraction. By hearing and doing the alternative that God gives us. Prayer. Uh, the, the prayer he's talking about, it can, it can demand all sorts of straining effort. The sort of straining effort that Paul's been talking about in chapter 3. Deliberate, determined effort to bring the situations and people who concern us to God. And to see the God to whom we bring them. We need to work with the spirit-empowered effort of developing new habits in prayer and new instincts to pray. And stop falling into the, the, the failing habits and instincts which are so determined to creep in. Don Carson's comment on this is confronting. He says, I've yet to meet a chronic warrior who enjoys an excellent prayer life. Makes you anxious. Well, how does your prayer list? Look to God to work in us. We, as we talked about last week, we work hard. We put effort in relying on God to work by His Spirit. It's Spirit-enabled effort. Now, there are personality and personal history things here, maybe even chemistry things. This passage does not, does not deny the existence of anxieties. You've heard Paul talk about himself being spared anxieties earlier in the letter. It doesn't deny anxieties, but it does tell us what to do with them. It tells us who to trust. It tells us where we'll find strength and help that we need. Tells us to pray. I think I think prayer can be a little like exercise. We all know we should probably do more. And a lot of people, when they're thinking they should do what they haven't been doing, they work out what's the best possible plan. And then they do it for a few days. And then they're back to doing nothing. Now, there's definitely a case for uh, making building an excellent prayer life a goal. Not already you, it's a great goal. But it's not you today, it's unlikely to be you tomorrow. I encourage you, though, to make a plan, a stage plan. The sort of plans we were talking about last week in terms of like having a plan for 10 years, 5 years, a year. Start with something you'll do. Much better to have a plan to pray that you follow through on and occasionally do more than you plan than to have a plan to pray that you rarely do. Build a prayer habit. Um, if it helps, it helps me, it might help you, write down the things you want to routinely pray. Write the actual prayers. Read them. Go off them. Take a break from them. But pray. Develop a prayer habit and develop a prayer instinct. I, this is one of the really helpful things here. It's just pray when you're anxious. Let anxiety be a trigger to pray. It can be a, a anxiety can be a trigger for go and find the distraction. 
And the solution, uh, some folk will say, will be find a healthy distraction instead of an unhealthy or sinful distraction. How about prayer as the habit? Commit it to the Lord. And the peace of God, our Father, He hears our prayers and is committed to caring for us will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Paul finishes this little section, verse 8, uh, 8 and 9. He, he lists things to think about, to dwell on, things to deliberately focus on, another habit to develop. Though he doesn't just list them. Through Paul, God commands us to give our deliberate attention to whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, any excellence, anything worthy of praise. God commands us to focus our attention on things which are good and beneficial and morally beautiful. Where do we see them? How do we recognize uh, what's true from what's false, what's honorable from what's corrupt, what's just and right from what's unjust and wrong, what's pure from what's grubby, what's lovely uh, from disgusting, from comm- what's commendable from condemnable, uh, excellent from perfect performance in the wrong direction, worthy of praise from praised unworthiness? We need a standard. We need something to compare everything else to. Otherwise, we'll end up valuing and thinking about the wrong things. Replacing the beauty of holiness with the holiness of beauty. Or or gospel-formed experience with experience as the gospel. Or obedience because we're already accepted with obedience as an attempt to earn acceptance. Or many other things. We need something to compare everything else to. Otherwise, we'll end up valuing the wrong things. We need verse 9. We need what we have learned and received and heard and seen in Paul. Paul taught as an apostle sent by Christ Jesus. He delivered the gospel he received from Christ. So they received from him. Christ's gospel. They heard and saw in Paul, <laughs> in Philippians just, a deep distrust in his, own unri- in his own righteousness. A settled confidence in the righteousness which comes from God and depends on faith in Christ. An eager pursuit of godly living and gospel-hearted, future-focused service. A Christ-like attitude to his hardships when they contributed to the gospel blessing of others. Those are among the things to think about. Now, Paul's not the only reference point. Beyond him is the Lord Jesus who he followed. Beside him are the other scriptures to teach us, to to pass on and communicate the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Beside him are brothers and sisters through the ages and in our lives, men, women, and children in whom the Spirit is working humble holiness and gospel-hearted service. Mercy takes in the breadth of that. Wherever you see true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellence, praiseworthy, 
Verse 9 helps us see how to recognize it, how to appreciate it in Paul's teaching and how it echoes out into his life and the lives of others. And verse 9 says, make sure it echoes in your life. Put it into practice. Do it. Don't get caught up in the distractions which threaten to draw you away. Don't, don't be deceived by false guides. And do develop a deep distrust in your own righteousness. A settled confidence in the righteousness which comes from God and depends on faith in Christ. An eager pursuit of godly living and gospel-hearted future-focused service. A Christ-like attitude to your hardships when they contribute to the gospel blessings of others. And the God of peace will be with you. He will be with you to care for you. To work what pleases and honors him in you. To conform you, his child, more and more to the likeness of his son while we await the glorious day. I'll finish with two Bible prayers. Can you speak to the people you're praying for? knowing that God hears and relying on him to do your desire. From First Thessalonians, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And from Hebrews, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.